Bars of Retail podcast. My name is Michael LeBlanc, and I am your host. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, meet Rose Patton, one of Canada's preeminent business and strategic thinkers, a special advisor to the CEO of BMO, an inductee to the Hall of Fame of Canada's Top 100 Most Powerful Women, an honorary colonel of the Canadian Forces College, and the 34th Chancellor of the University of Toronto. Rose is now the author of Intentional Leadership, the Big Eight Capability Setting Leaders Apart, we chatted in person at her U of T offices to explore the principles and concepts of leadership well articulated in her popular new book. Rose, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well, and especially well because it's such a wonderful day. It's a wonderful day, and it's a wonderful room. You know, what is it, the, the saying that uh, new thoughts from old buildings, right? Was it Jane Jacobs said that? Uh, so it's, it's a real treat for me to be back on campus. I'm a, I'm a grad of Rotman. We're here in the Chancellor's office, uh, so it's very familiar looks to me. Of course, all the construction makes it a little less familiar. <laughs> getting, yeah, getting it does, in but, but as, a, as a grad you know, and alum, you know, you will be happy when it's finished. Yeah, no because doubt. Because it's going to be even more exquisite and inviting uh, to come back. Perfect, yeah. perfect. Uh, well, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I'm very excited to talk about your book and, and talk about you a little bit. Uh, so let's begin there. Tell us a little bit and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what you do for a living. You have an esteemed past Order of Canada, very accomplished chancellor. We want to get into that of University of Toronto. I want to find out what that actually yeah. does and, and what yeah. that actually means. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, a quick, a quick view of my path. Um, it, it doesn't to me, you know, seem uh, all that great or I mean great meaning unusual, but you just do what you do uh, and you end up where you are. But I quote Steve Jobs very often because uh, he has this wonderful expression uh, that says you can't really link the dots or connect the dots mm. from looking backward. You can only really hope they work looking forward. And I think that mine works really well. So looking backward, it sounds kind of neat and orderly, but you know how life is. It yeah. never works quite that way. Sure, sure. Um, but my, um, my early years were spent in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, so that's kind of a start, a birth starting early point. Yep. And then my next point in life, uh, which has been the major part of my life, has been Toronto. And um, from a career standpoint, I guess that give you that picture. Um, it's been largely in finance, the financial institutions, but actually. I've been around long enough that when I began in the various parts of uh, the financial industry, uh, they were all separate. So I spent time in what we would know as regular banking. Retail banking uh, versus... It would be retail commercial, but, you know, that Mm -hmm. side of banking. um, Investment banking, uh, insurance, and trust. So um, I was in each of the pillars, and so that brought me into the opportunity to be able to be part of uh, the actual integration and merger of some of those when they began. Mm. Um, and so uh, it's been largely in Canada in those early years. Uh, but then as I became more senior, uh, particularly at Manulife and at, at BMO, um, I spent a lot of time in Asia. So I mentioned this because it's, um, it's, it's significant, in my view, as to my learning, my development, uh, of, of going to Asia, spending a third of my time there. I didn't live full-time there, mm. but a third of my time over three years. And so I attribute that greatly to uh, early understanding of cultures. Mm. Um, and so basically, think of it this way. Um, it was the four pillars in financial services, 
kind of Canada, US a fair bit because we're big in the US. Yeah. Um, Europe, not so much, and then Asia in a significant way. So as, as you think back, what got you into banking? Were you always interested in finance and business? Did you have a fork in the road that you took one way, shape, or another? How did you wind up in this kind of career path? Uh, we, you know, I didn't have a crystal ball, and I didn't have a, a big plan. Uh, I just, it was kind of started out being a job. And uh, it, it intrigued me pretty fast because... Mm of being into a quantitative structural kind of way. I like complex things. I, I was always considered to be a nosy person. Now they call it, <laughs> now they call it curiosity. Yeah. yeah, and curiosity's good. So I, you know, I did okay by my curiosity, although it wasn't always thought of that way through the years. Mm. Um, and so it was never intended as a career in banking per se. Um, but my portfolios, tended to come, not, not always by my choice, but also looking back, it would be I gravitated that way. Mm. I did well that way, and therefore, you know, you get recognized. Mm. It was always two streams. So on the financial kind of strategic side, because early days you had to be financially oriented in order to be strategically oriented. That was expected. Sure. Um, and I gravitated quite a bit toward the people side. So that was an interesting mix, again, if you look back in hindsight. Um, so I ended up, I guess, um, you know, throughout the financial services industry in those various sec uh, sectors um, and in the ge uh, geographies. But I also ended up, I guess, in some way with two streams, either one and then the other. So it was either in the people side and leadership started to emerge hmm. as a as a label even, even though that and only in more recent years, because we talked about management yeah. in general yeah. through, through our schools as well. Um, but that started to emerge. So it was never the day-to-day -day of the human resource kind of policy practice as much as it was in the talent side. Mm. So it was very much leadership-talent. Um, and then I just gravitated planning and, and strategy. They had different names in those days. Um, and so I was had one or the other in each of those institutions. And then I landed, uh, lastly, uh, with BMO, and I had both. So I, had, um, I was EVP of the Office of Strategic Management, mm -hmm. and I was EVP of Human Resources. So it was a mm. combined, which is very unusual. But, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes things happen yeah. because of the person, because of the time, because of the circumstances. Yeah. Um, now, in, when I put in place my successors 10 years ago or so, uh, we separated it at, at mm. that time. So now there's a head you know, of global HR and there's a head of strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's more typical. But anyway, but I learned an enormous amount from those dual portfolios uh, and the wonderful ability to do it. So that is how, if you look back on where I am today, I'm doing a mix still. Um, I moved away intentionally um, from BMO, from BMO uh, to portfolios that we talked about, mm -hmm. both a combination of where I was in life. It wasn't pure retirement, but it was where I was in life, uh, combined with my great desires that were now a little bit more evident to me. And mm -hmm. I was starting to a point where I could have a choice. So I talked to our CEO at the time to say, you know, I really would like to focus on the whole concept of leadership. Of it started, Michael, uh, I would say, in a very serious way that could be codified. Um, 
and about 10, 12 years ago. So it was in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And I was big in those two portfolios at that time. I got invited to be part of a very serious study across North America uh, as one of maybe 350 or so uh, very senior leaders to look at um, what were the implications for leadership and could leadership, if it had been different, or better, mm. could it have been impactful mm. through the financial crisis? Mm. So that really turned all my buttons. Mm. And that's when I wanted to be part of this, not the university per se, but this whole topic. This field of study and the field It's yeah. a body of knowledge, yeah. a field of study, but not one that you could quickly generalize about you know, or declare conclusions. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very complex, somewhat elusive topic mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of people, mm -hmm. and, and, and rightly so. It, it, it reminds me of, I, I spent some time at McGill University um, uh, in the master's program in international relations, and it was at the time when the wall came down. So we were yes, at, this, yes. we were at this, this fiction that lived for 30 or 40 years yeah. that we managed through the Cuban Missile Crisis, that yeah. that, that, that was a school yeah. that you could establish that was conflict management. Yeah. And what we quickly figured out uh, when the wall came down and people started talking, well, we just got lucky, yeah. right? We didn't blow the world up because yeah. it was well-managed. We got to... Yeah. And, and the banking crisis, to me, yeah. kind of felt a little bit like that. Yeah. Like, we're, like yes. one thing over here just started to spin out of control. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and, and so, yeah. really, it, now we think differently of leadership and management and yes, control, right? Yeah, and I think I would say to you, based on my very deliberate exploration, which began in about, you know, 20, uh, I guess, more like 10 or 11, even though the crisis started in 08, mm -hmm. uh, basically. Um, but it began to be clear to me that there was something to this, but we needed more carefully to look at it because leadership is often thought of in generalizations or lists of attributes sure. or, you know, or lists of things. So I wanted to get beyond that, um, both my curiosity as well as I, I have a, a need for more precision to things. Right. <laughs> I think that's reflected in your accomplishments. I think that's okay. Let, let's talk about, uh, you're the 34th Chancellor of the University yeah. of Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I'm a grad, uh, but I have to admit I do not know what a Chancellor of the University no. of Toronto does. So Unpack that for the yeah. listeners a little yeah. bit. So, so uh, thank you for asking that, but don't feel alone. You are right. In fact, I take the, uh, often the initiative uh, when, when people say, what do you do? Uh, do, you, do you know, want me to tell you a little bit about it? You know, I don't want to assume mm -hmm. they want to know. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, you know, I guess the best way to describe it, officially it would be called the ceremonial head of the university. Mm. Um, the management head would be the president. Sure. Um, in Canada, uh, I would think most universities do have some form, but most of those that are known as chancellors would have similar role, mm. so not uniquely different in each one, although they may play out differently because personalities bring things sure, sure. to the table. Some people are more rainmakers, others and, are more policy-driven. That's right, thing. yeah, and are just very people-driven. In fact, mm. when I became chancellor as an elected post, by the way, mm. um, uh, not an appointment, uh, it's elected by a board of 50 people here, oh. so you kind of, <laughs> when you're when That you're must off, have been unique for you. Have you ever been in an elected position? I mean, you... you no. No, that's I, different, right? It's very different. Yeah, yeah. No, you're selected, you know, or you're appointed, <laughs> and that's kind of it. Um, so this was different, but the nice thing about it is, in my view, you don't know you're being considered. Oh, okay. You, you're, you're, you're only asked when you're the chosen one to see if you would 
be interested in taking it. Mm. I don't imagine many people turn it down. It's quite a oh, prestigious. Can, it's a wonderful, purposeful sure, thing. Sure. I think of it for its purpose, uh, its far-reaching impact. Mm-hmm. You know, been around, long-standing institution. Mm. So these are the factors that really interested me. And I saw leadership in the big L sense around this umbrella as well. And so it, it, it just, it was the biggest honor uh, ever. I mean, just wonderful. I've been very fortunate in that respect. And, and you, you are a, a beneficiary. You've got a higher education as well, yeah, several, so several in, degrees in as well. Things. What's your assessment of, of university and higher education? today? Yeah. Is, it, is it serving the purpose it needs to? Are we creating good citizens? Are we creating people who can go out and get jobs and be productive and be good citizens? What's, what's your assessment? Sitting, and it's, it's interesting, it's a different perspective, right? It's a different thing to be in this office than outside looking yeah. in or, yeah. or whatever. Well, I mean, I guess I've, had, I've seen it from both angles because, you know, in all my years uh, in big institutions, I've been after talent big time. And it was part of even my role, much mm-hmm. less what I should be interested in. So I think your question is an important one. Uh, I, I would say that, you know, we, it's like my concepts of leadership. Uh, there's always renewal. I think the times we're in in general as they change, some changes, you know, that we see, some of the crises are transitional, but, but others are not transitory. Mm. They're here to stay. So I do think that education largely uh, does need constant attention and renewal for its currency, for its relevancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, uh, you know, I can speak to give you an idea of University of Toronto, and you came here, so I'm sure you favored it for, for different reasons. But at the same time, you know, we're known, as, as, you, as you know this, one of the top ten in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the ranking, you actually do get ranked on your employability of your students. Mm. So they're their preparation, how much they're sought after uh, for employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We rank 11th in the world. Mm. So we're very proud and we are, are very feeling comfortable in general. We'll never be doing as well. You know, it, it keeps changing. Sure. Um, but uh, I think we're doing extremely well. I can only speak with knowledge mm-hmm. uh, to the University of Toronto. Mm. But I do think that, you know, the attention is on it. Well, let's, let's talk about what we're here to talk about a little bit. Uh, we're here to talk about you a little bit. Let's talk about your book, Intentional Leadership, The Big Eight Capabilities, Setting Leaders Apart. So let's start at the beginning. Um, why did you write the book? Was it, was it a gap on the shelf you saw that there was a, a gap somewhere? Was it something that you just been wanting to do for decades, you just had to say it, or has something changed? Take, take me through your thinking. Yeah. It was never in my mind. <laughs> okay. It was never in my mind. It was never on my bucket list. And was there a glimmer even of probability? No. Mm. So that's as definite as I can be about it. But I did finish telling you the story of how I began a very deliberate exploration of leadership Mm -hmm. through the financial crisis. And then, of course, before we know it, because it wasn't that long in between, we have the pandemic. Sure. I was drawn into it again. But during that period, um, I was invited to teach at Rotman. And I've been uh, teaching... um, Leadership, in fact, the flagship branch, uh, the flagship um, program Mm -hmm. uh, at Rotman. And um, we didn't at Rotman, and you might know this from your knowledge, you know, we didn't go the route of the six-week advanced leadership, advanced management program that some did. So we've done it more kind of in a much more focused way. 
And so I was fortunate enough to be, it was Roger Martin today, uh, to be asked to do this. And that was at, right at the time I mentioned to you that I wanted to get more involved in this, mm. in, in the concepts of leadership. So throughout that period between uh, then, which was in the aftermath, and now, um, there's been 1,400 leaders who've been through mm. this program that I was shaping, these concepts that I was shaping from this work. And um, the 14 were not all here. Uh, about 500 of them were from BMO. BMO uh, has offered advanced leadership to the top 500 people around the world uh, since 08. And that was one of my you know, kind of pet peeves. Mm. And because it used to be in many organizations uh, that you know, it stopped kind of at that director level, if yeah. you can think of a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, that gave me an enormous amount of latitude to explore, to challenge, to test, and to create. Create a model, a concept, a mm. practice that seemed to be, quote, working. Um, and so really that had been going on, and then I was drawn back into it with the pandemic. Uh, so it was in around the pandemic time um, that I start to think I should really be codifying this to a much greater extent. Mm. I would get like questions asked from time to time, you know, when people were leaving, oh, Rose, we've been here a week, but you got to give us something else kind <laughs> of thing. You know, this is the biggest problem we have because mm. unless you have something to trigger back at the workplace, yeah. there's some of it which you don't carry on yeah, yeah. with. Um, and so I had an invitation from, uh, from the, a couple of publishing houses, but their interest was more on all about me mm, mm -hmm. uh, and me and, and the, the, the ceilings, breaking the ceilings sure, and all sure. of this. That doesn't interest me as much. Um, I'm private and low-key person in general, although my public positions wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> wouldn't tell as you Chancellor of the University, uh, University of Toronto, I would say, uh, yeah, okay. Because you know it has global reach as yeah, well. Yes. And, and, and we do have you know, many, many, many thousands of people. Um, but that, that, that's different. That's different. That's different. different I, right. I noticed that in your book. I mean, I, you know, I, I, we were talking off mic. I've interviewed many authors. Roger Martin has been on the yeah. podcast a couple of times. And, and some authors take a, a path where they spend a, a quarter of the book talking about themselves for context. But you kind of jump right in. Yeah. You know, the, basically the only thing you get to know about you is on the jacket of the outside <laughs> cover. Uh, no, I jump in. And in fact, uh, the one point that I think is very relevant, if you don't mind, is that... Um, my immediate attention was drawn to not just the 1,400 people who had kind of been living through this in the mm -hmm. classroom and that I had a chance to explore, but then I chose 10 Canadian leaders on the criteria that I had to know them well, mm -hmm. meaning I had to know whether I believed that they were really great leaders, because sure. titles don't always tell you who people mm -hmm. are great leaders, yeah. and that they needed to be multiple sector just as I was in my leadership learning, um, and that you know I had to like them. Um, <laughs> so uh, I immediately asked them, even before I had put a pen to paper, uh, would they join me on this journey and uh, have conversations? I didn't call it interviews. Mm. And you know I was very fortunate. Each of the ten, I didn't have to go to my second list, kind of thing. Right. All said yes. Yeah. Um, so my my philosophy is um, is that it's what a lot of people do, not what one person does. Mm. And I think that they were able to, through their real stories, and through how they volunteered, their setbacks and their defining moments. 
it was amazing how we were able to see that they were utilizing some of those concepts. Um, but it was all their words, uh, everything uh, in the book. So it it's not about me. You know, I believe that one of the big lessons that I've learned, and I, I know you have an interest in this, mm -hmm. um, is consultation, input, debate, and discussion is all part of an outcome that's much richer. And so I think this view that we as leaders have had, and I think it's an outdated belief that we have, um, and I had it when I was in earlier years, where when you're chosen to be a senior leader, wow, you've really arrived. And now, you know, you've got to have all the answers because that's what you get paid Thanks so much for. for. Right. And so I went through early years of, uh, not that early either, but of thinking I had to have all the answers. Mm. Well, aside from the fact that, you know, your conclusions are not as rich, uh, B, you can kill yourself kind of trying to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And C, you can shortchange other people. Mm. So you do learn this. Uh, so it stayed with me quite a bit. And, um, and so that's why you don't, you know, I don't, I don't need to say lots. Right. Um, I wanted to talk, and some of your, the folks you interviewed talked about this um, idea of short versus long-term yeah. objectives. It's one thing that interests me a lot. I mean, you know as an executive in a high-performing organization, you still need to put points on the board, right? You still need to hit your objectives. You still need you know, yeah. shareholder value, whatever those values are. How do you, how do you think, uh, and many of you, the folks you interviewed talked about this, this trade-off, if it's a true trade-off, if that's framed right, mm -hmm. between short-term and long-term mm -hmm. objectives. And I think that applies to leadership as well. What, what do I need to get done today versus mm -hmm. what, and sometimes these conflict, right? What do I need to get yeah. done today versus what do I need to get done yeah. in the right direction? How do but you think it, about that? But I think about it in the sense that it is an age-old problem, but it will continue, because mm -hmm. I don't think there's any, any way around it in the sense that you know we are subjected to a lot of stakeholders. Mm. Stakeholders, you know, it's one of my big game changers are the change in stakeholders from shareholder to stakeholder. And we have many of them, and they're only going to continue to either stay very demanding or even get more demanding. Uh, so I don't think they'll get less. So while ever we have this, I think you, you can't ignore either one of this. I think that because one of the premises in my book and the way why I call it intentional leadership is that we have to be more reflective. Now, that doesn't mean doing meditation sessions every day, but we have to be more reflective to think about the moment in time, to think about and get input from others what some of the consequences are of some of our major decisions. That may alert us to, you know, there's, there's more to think about that's mm. coming down the road here. I think we're just often uh, too urgent to do the here and now. Uh, that we don't give enough time to mm. the longer term. But I also recognize that, you know, there's a lot of expectations and no one has lots of patience. Um, you know, and, and I've worked and continue to work for Retail Council of Canada, which is, yeah. you know, a lobbying organization. And often yeah. we find ourselves talking to politicians about unintended consequences. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. So that, that I, I like to, when people say, what did you do for a living? I said, well, let me frame it this way. When you have discussions with business leaders and decision leaders and politicians, you, you're explaining, you're thinking you're going to make this decision, but you need to understand the broader set yeah. of yeah. consequences. So I really re yeah. what you say really, yeah. really resonates yeah. with and, me. And you know, Michael, it also uh, it's what I really care about in conveying um, that the, the context 
matters. Mm. Often we don't pay enough attention to the context, and we use and try to rely too much on yesterday's assumptions without thinking something there may have changed. Mm. So reflection you know, and intention will bring this out as opposed to the underlying assumption that's been tried and true for a while. Is, is the pace of change an artificial construct? Yeah. Are, are we really, you know, everyone says it's so fast-paced now. Are we, is, that, is that true? I mean, it's fair to say, I think you and I would agree, that we can't imagine ourselves being less influenced by digital in the next 10 years. It's right. hard to see less of these, some of these things. Yeah. But is, is it this, I call it the culty, cult of business, busyness. Yeah. We used yeah, to get on I, elevators and say, I, how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Yeah, I like yeah. that. How are you doing? I, I, I love it. I love that yeah. expression. I hadn't heard it yeah. put that way. Um, so it is a really wonderful, smart question, if mm. I may say so. Okay. Uh, it's a very insightful question because I have to say uh, it's, it's both. I think the unprecedented change that we talk about, these extraordinary times, I do think they are real. But they're not necessarily as real, dramatic, and embellished mm. uh, as we make them to be, you know, through the media, through the culty conversation. H however, uh, I believe some of them are transitory. And so basically, if you've got some that are transitory, you've got to recognize that and distinguish between. It's hard to decipher uh, because we're surrounded by so much information mm. and hyperbole, really. Um, but I do think that there are many of the changes uh, that are here to stay. They may shape a little differently. You know, in my book, I like the idea of the pendulum swing. Mm. And uh, pendulums take sometimes a bit of time to be nudged. They do swing. They never swing back to where they were. So there's always change that's sticking, and it builds. So I do think that we're in a world that is constantly changing, and I think leadership renewal is, is the only way around it. Let's talk about the, uh, the period we just went through, uh, the, the COVID era. Uh, and I, like you, think about um, you know, changes we made to our lives and structures yeah. that were an adaptation yeah. to a very unusual time yeah. versus structural changes. Yeah. So as you reflect on the, on the yeah. COVID era, what kind of uh, do, you, do you think of any structural changes that brought about? I mean, you, you, were, you took on the mantle of strategy during the banking crisis, a crisis of a yeah. different kind, but for that sector, quite quite. Yeah. Important. Do you, do you think leadership has changed or any changes that you can I think it learned? has dramatic impact on leadership because, uh, if I may refer to my book, I identify mm. three game changers uh, because, to your point, leadership is always changing. You know, you can get carried away a little bit here and there. But I think at the end of the day, you'd have to really look at and examine and explore and prove and test and push and pull. What are the real game changers that are here that no one is exempt from? And the three that I came up with uh, were the stakeholder expectations, the changing workforce, mm -hmm. and of course the short-lived strategies. No one can get away from those. They're not going to get better. So even, even in this kind of cult environment, these are not going to go away. To your point about digitalization, because mm. it's one of the causes of strategy, you know, being so short-lived. Sure. And I think it's, it's, it's within those. I think that leaders, um, and I, I talk a bit about this in my book, um, just need to pause, reflect, and become a bit more aware of their immediate, what's immediate context at hand. Mm. I think they're smart enough to be able to come up with, but potentially a slightly different solution. 
The other thing that I think in the workplace, and COVID to me proved this, um, is that you know we, we were grateful that the workplaces changed overnight, you know, mm. on a weekend we went remote, it's and like we just thought we would do well. Uh, but we forgot um, that when things kind of went another way, it doesn't mean they'd stay there. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of people's attitudes, people were harmed in many ways uh, by COVID times, different hardships, some for financial, some health, some mental death, yeah, sure. mental health, it's all kinds of health. Mm -hmm. So the decisions that, that leaders have to be involved in now, in addition to the normal stuff of, of financial performance and productivity, you know, they can't escape the reality or at least the implications of this. So I think that we're far from being able to prescribe what is the outcome mm. uh, in a post-COVID environment. I've interviewed an author, he's a great thinker on this, Rashad Tabakawala, and he says the future doesn't fit in the containers of the past. So he, he kind of says, you know, everything, yeah. everything has changed. Very much, I've read the same themes in your book. Yeah, it's the same themes, yeah. Um, different language, yeah. I want to zoom in on one element, and that's the workplace, right? Yeah. So we have a very boisterous conversation going on right now. You would be more than familiar with it. Uh, and I think it's fascinating because it involves everything from class to control yes, yes, to productivity. Yes. You know, when I talk to yeah. I talk to retail CEOs across the country every quarter, yeah. and during the COVID era, I was saying, okay, how, are you feeling like your people are productive at home? Yeah, eight out of 10, mm -hmm. fine. Yeah, we, mm -hmm. we love the productivity. Mm -hmm. Don't know if it's gonna last, but we, mm -hmm. we like yeah. it. It doesn't work yeah. for everybody. Uh, and we now see prominent CEOs uh, threatening enticing somewhere on a spectrum their employees back to the office. What, what do you make of all this? What do you, what, what do you yeah. think? I, I think, you know, in, in terms of the assertions that I've made or the learnings that I would like to convey, I do think there's more need for leaders to listen more, to engage more. Now, the workforce is crying out for this. They're, they're talking about it by walking, you know, mm -hmm. by their feet. Um, but I do think that it, it's a wake-up call for leaders to not rely on yesterday's assumptions. Mm. And it's not about a command and control yesterday, because we've moved in many ways from this, although there's still many that hold on. Um, but it is more about connect and collaborate input. Um, it's part of my big eight. Um, mm -hmm. And so I just think that leaders have to, you know, if you wanted to say come off their high horses, you could. I'm a leader, so I know what it's like uh, to try to make change. It's hard. And mm -hmm. I know what it's like to change myself. It's hard. Uh, but it's the reality. And I do think tuning in to a different mindset right now, their own, but also the employee, is so critical. Mm. Uh, my advice to the CEOs that I advise, um, which is not just my immediate uh, two or three, because I do this in, in other ways, um, is to don't rush into, take time, listen. Uh, yes, you need to stay competitive. You need to move as quickly as you can. But don't just declare mm. and implement. Mm. Um, I just think it'll bite you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, last couple of questions. Um, looking at your career, uh, accomplished quite a lot by any measure. Anything you would have done differently as you look back? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine... Uh, too much decisions that you went left, right, or center? Is there anything you, you uh, or lessons you would impart from your background or something you might have done a bit different? Well, I get asked that a lot, and so, yes, I mean, there's lots that you would want to have done earlier, 
Mm. Um, you know, things I've mentioned to you, some of the learnings that I had from my cultural diversity early years. You know, I would have done that earlier and learned mm. more even because I think it's been so beneficial. Um, I haven't had too many stumbles, but I think that's also because I'm quite a positive person mm. and I make something out of, you know, yeah. uh, being hit on University Avenue and being told you wouldn't walk again. That did happen to me. Oh, my goodness. So I make something out of things mm. and I, I kind of... So it's, it's not naivety. It's just a, a, an element of um, realistic optimism. Um, I've heard it said some people, and you don't have as much time as you think to accomplish. Yeah. Like, like the, yeah. I, I get that from a lot of leaders. They're mm. when they think about their organ, are we moving fast enough? Yeah. Are we are we yeah. watching these years go past yeah. us? Yeah. Are we? Yeah. You know, it was one. It was it was funny because it was one of these weird benefits of the COVID era, right? We ah, should we be home? Should we do this? And, yeah. and overnight, suddenly everyone went home and was able to work. Like yeah. we solved the problem in yeah. days, not yeah. years. Yeah. That kind of, I, I feel like, and, and I'm going to get your thoughts on this, I feel like there's a concern among leaders that they've lost that kind of mm -hmm. ability, let's call it agility, yeah. to kind of make those decisions. And framed another way, why do I need a crisis to be able to, <laughs> to, yeah. be able to make yeah. those quick yeah. decisions, right? But I think reading your book, I think the lessons and your model is, I think, helpful in that. That moves that forward. Well, I think it is because there's no condemnation here. It's just the reality that we're dealing with. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, the self-awareness and situational awareness is what's lacking. Mm. Uh, we're still holding on to yesterday's assumptions. Uh, we're relying on them. And I think that we just need to stop this. It's not that we don't have the ability. Um, but self-awareness to me, um, you know, it is, there's research showing that self-awareness, leaders who are truly self-aware are four times more successful. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean in terms of promotions and titles. It means in success, period, right. you know, getting, getting the thing done. Um, so I, I feel that, I guess, you know, still trying to answer your question in a way because I could give you many, many um, of things that I would have done differently. I, I would say that self-awareness is one that we should all watch. I learned how to be more self-aware. Um, we confuse self-image with self-awareness. Mm. And so think about it. Interesting. We confuse self-image with self-awareness. It's very profound. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think once we stop doing that, then we have nowhere to go but to maybe get some input from a few others if mm. you're testing your own self-image. Um, that, that'll wake you up. Well, my guest is Rose Patton. The book is Intentional Leadership, The Big Eight Capabilities, Setting Leaders Apart, available. I'll put a link in the show notes, available. I, I saw it on Amazon, available where you love to buy your books, Amazon, chapters, wherever. University of Toronto Press, of course, you, yeah. can, you can buy it there. Well, Rose, thanks so much for uh, sitting down. You're very generous with your time and, and insights, and, and it was a treat to meet you, and, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, I'm really glad I did. I told you the story of it, and so I repeat that. It's been my pleasure as well. Fantastic. And I wish you well with what you're doing. What you're doing, I think, is extremely important for all of us. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, be sure and follow on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically each week. And be sure to check out my other retail industry media properties, Remarkable Retail Podcast with Steve Dennis and the Global E-Commerce Leaders Podcast. Last but not least, if you're into barbecue, check out my YouTube barbecue show, Last Request Barbecue, with new episodes each and every week. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, consumer growth consultant, president of Emmy LeBlanc and Company Inc., Maven Media, and keynote speaker. 
If you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at meleblanc.co. Safe travels, everyone.